From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Your long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome, one and all, to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. A special hello to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, the podcast at Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, TalkZone.com, and, of course, uh, the free app, uh, free download, the Conspiracy Show app. However and wherever you're listening, I bid the the warmest of welcomes. It's great to have your company. We are going into part two of our conversation with author, filmmaker, Paul Davids, who is the co-author of a most remarkable document. It's called An Atheist in Heaven, The Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death, uh, which details in incredible detail the after-death communication between Paul Davids and his good friend, mentor, Forrest J. Ackerman, who was a science fiction writer, a literary agent, and the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, which was an inspiration to uh, generations of filmmakers. And this all uh, began a few months after Forrest Ackerman passed away in uh, December of 2008, Things began to unfold in March of 2009, shortly after, uh, I guess it was the weekend, following a Hollywood tribute to Mr. Ackerman, uh, which we talked about previously. And uh, then we talked about March of uh, 2009 at Paul David's vacation home in Santa Fe, New Mexico, what has been called the ink obliteration on a particular document that Paul found on his bed, And uh, we're going to pick it up from there and just kind of summarize that once again before we move forward. But let me once again introduce Paul Davids. He's an author, artist, director. He's produced films that include Marilyn Monroe Declassified, NBC Universal's Jesus in India, and The Sci-Fi Boys, and Showtime's Roswell. He co-authored six books of the Star Wars saga with his wife, Hollis Davids, for Lucasfilm. He's a Princeton psychology graduate, and his uncanny experiences of phenomena related to Mr. Ackerman are the subject of the film The Life After Death Project, which uh, uh, I believe premiered across uh, Canada on Vision TV here at Zoomer Media. An Atheist in Heaven is about this extraordinary case of afterlife communication, and Mr. Davids has signed a sworn affidavit certifying that it is all uh, true. And we should also point out uh, that uh, Michael Shermer uh, from Skeptical Inquiry magazine, uh, and I've interviewed Michael Shermer. Let me tell you, he's a tough nut. <laughs> Not my favorite person to interview. Uh, however, he has some actually some pretty uh, positive things to say uh, about this entire account, and um, we'll, we'll get uh, Paul Davids to fill us in on that a little bit later. But let's uh, welcome Paul to the program once again. Paul, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Richard. All right. It's great to have the opportunity to, to, to tell about this. And, uh, you know, earlier when I, I mentioned that an atheist in heaven in Canada, you know, you can get the ebook at uh, Amazon. Of course, you can also order the get the hardback from from Amazon, and I guess so that that's shipped from the U.S. and go to Canada too. And some people, I guess, are listening from the U.S. This just was published in April, after three years of writing, 
to document all the things that we've put into the Life After Death Project uh, documentary that you mentioned. Um, so it's all there, all the, uh, the strange incidents that have happened. There's a glossary listing 140 events that have happened in, uh, well, the last uh, seven years. And uh, there's the reports of the scientists who studied the physical evidence because uh, when the first incident happened involving ink, I treated the document as uh, a potential scientific evidence and was soon to personally hand-deliver it to the head chemist at Indiana University. That was Jay Spiegel. Dr. Jay Siegel, yes. Siegel, Jay Siegel. Okay, yeah. just quickly, for those who weren't with us previously, just very, very quickly, uh, a thumbnail sketch of what you found. You came out of your bathroom at your vacation home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Right. And you discovered you had printed out 24 pages of kind of a tax document, a summary, f- including a phone log of people you had contacted and so forth. Yeah. And what did you find? Yeah, and this was just a few days after the big tribute for Fari Ackerman in Hollywood, uh, and two Canadian filmmakers had been there and had and claimed that they had had contact from Fari after visiting his crypt. And I knew Fari for, you know, we're talking about a half a century. I met him when I was a, a boy, and uh, he, he was like a second father to me and a great inspiration for me to follow the career I did in, in film and television and writing. Uh, so... Uh, the experience I had was, it was a few days after the uh, tribute, and uh, uh, a document that I knew had been absolutely ordinary. Um, when I put it down on my bed and went into the bathroom, when, when I came out five minutes later, I'm alone in this house in Santa Fe. The doors are locked. There's no question about that. There's no one physically present who could have done this. But then four words are strategically, carefully, meticulously blacked out on the document with ink or paint or whatever was used that is still moist at that time. So it had to have happened while I was in the bathroom. And uh, because it was so clearly targeted, uh, it was a profound mystery because, as I said, there was no one physically there that could have done it. I didn't do it. I was shocked by it. I was frightened when it appeared. But I was careful, you know, not to touch it. And I, uh, in the first hour, we talked, for those who didn't hear, we, we talked about how I, I, I determined uh, after some time that it was logically could be interpreted as a message from Forrest J. Ackerman, particularly since it coincided with another message that uh, he gave in an apparition to the fellow that had organized his tribute. So, but what did I do? I, um, well, the next day we did investigations in the house. We did filming in the house. There's a strange mask from Africa, a tribal mask that was in the very next room. And there were electromagnetic field anomalies that were measured the next day. We got uh, a very clear electronic voice phenomena on the filming, again, that was strange that could have related to Fari's friend, you know, he was an admirer of Edgar Allan Poe. Fari and his famous monsters promoted every Edgar Allan Poe movie, you know, based on Poe's stories. And uh, here we had an electronic voice phenomena of the word Lenore, J 
just like that, when there was no one there who could have said that, and, uh, you know, I don't know any Lenore other than the Lenore who's in Poe's The Raven and his poem, Lenore, so of course it made me think of that. Um, so all these anomalies happened within that 24-hour uh, period, and I protected the document, and it so happened that I have a first cousin who at that time was chairman of the chemistry department of Indianapolis University, Purdue University, uh, I'm sorry, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Complicated college name. So Jace, Dr. Jay Siegel, here's a man of great scientific reputation. He's written many, many forensic chemistry books. Uh, he's testified in cases in courts of law that involved chemical evidence. And uh, he heard my distress, and I said, Jay, you know, please, if there's any way this can logically be explained, put my mind at ease. Uh, explain it for me. I can't explain it. To me, it was in my house and did this. And I, I think I know who the ghost was. But I know you're dealing ghosts, you deal in molecules. So I'm, I want to bring you this document. And I came with my video camera. I filmed what happened in the lab. And the investigation progressed from Jay Siegel's work to he called in a former associate. Paul, let me just stop you there because your your phone is starting to crackle. And I don't know if this is another one of these ongoing, if this is Forey Ackerman reaching out to us again and playing some tricks. But Did it just start to crackle? It did, yes. Let me... Uh, let me pick up the other phone that connects to the same line. I think you can hear me now, right? I can. Okay. Okay. So you were talking about uh, a chemist, Jay Siegel, and you're you're asking him to get involved in this investigation. Right. Well, the investigation, which he thought would be probably a simple thing that he could deal with quickly, because again, he and Dr. Allison of New Jersey were world-class experts. They had done this large project categorizing, um, creating a, a catalog of all these different inks and dyes and paints and solvents. So one question was, okay, what, what was the ink that this happened with? They both agreed that this was deliberate. It was done intentionally. It was These words were targeted. And... Uh, so, one question was, what, what, what is the material that it was done with? And the other question is, how, how was it done? And another question is, can they reproduce it in the lab? And this mystery just compounded itself again and again and again for them. And they never got satisfactory answers to how it was done and were unable to reproduce it. And the actual answer about the chemistry and the molecules was very unsatisfying because it only intensified the mystery. Intensified it because they felt most of the molecules they were able to show were the same ink that was originally from the printer, but with silver added and with calcium chromate added that weren't there. So that came from some source added to that ink. But the problem is that because two words were completely blacked out, completely opaque, you needed enough ink off that page to make it opaque. 
Right. So you had to have a solvent that could take a lesser amount of ink and extend its blackness and make that work to black out two words. Here's the guys who know every solvent there is. They tried for three years. They were never able to reproduce it because you could always see through whatever it was that they added to the ink to try to make you know enough there to black it out. So they couldn't solve that mystery. Uh, couldn't solve the mystery of, uh, of, of, of how it, it could have been done. There was no one there physically to do it, and they couldn't reproduce it. And to make matters more complicated, John Allison reports in the book the sort of, you might say, poltergeist uh, activity that began for him. It started the very weekend I showed up with the document, with All my right. camera. I'm going to jump in. We'll take a time out, and we'll, uh, we'll get back to this story. Uh, co-author John Allison, uh, another uh, chemistry professor, who will uh, tell us about his experiences while investigating the after-death communications between Forrest J. Ackerman, editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, and my guest, Paul Davids, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Let me crib from the uh, the back of An Atheist in Heaven, The Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death. Co-author Paul Davids joins us, detailing the uh, after-death or post-mortem communications between Paul Davids and science fiction writer, editor of um, Famous Monsters of Filmland, Forrest J. Ackerman. What happens when a lifelong skeptic dies and discovers he was wrong about life after death? Forrest J. Ackerman, a luminary in the early history of science fiction and an ardent, lifelong atheist, promised that if he were wrong about the non-existence of an afterlife, he would attempt to send a convincing message to a few people he especially respected. Not only did Forrest leave a physical message for co-author Paul Davids that could not be explained by contemporary forensic science, but Forrest produced an extraordinary wealth of four kinds of converging evidence. One, startling physical phenomena, many with clues to his identity. Two, frequent, highly improbable synchronicities. Three, relevant communications via research um, mediums, sorry, via research mediums. And four, astonishing measurable effects on technology beyond anything previously documented in the history of afterlife research. Could this, in fact, be the ultimate evidence for life after death? Uh, keep in mind, two of the co-authors, Gary E. Schwartz and John Allison, are both PhDs and uh, university professors. Now, before the break, uh, Paul, you were talking about uh, John Allison, who yes. who you approached, and he wrote two chapters in this book, and he began to encounter or experience some poltergeist activity once he got on board. Uh, one of those he involved, he made, he was making copies of this ink obliteration, which sort of kicked things off for you back in March of 2009. And, um, well, I'll, I'll sort of relay this first one very quickly, and then you can get into some of the others. But he, so he would, he would have these photocopies sort of arranged, I guess, on a desk, and he would come and find them sort of scattered, fanned out on his floor. No other person had access to them or would have touched them. Uh, and uh, so that that was sort of one thing that obviously alarmed John. Uh, but there were other instances, one including uh, one involving his his telephone, and another involving a Furby doll. I'll let you pick it up from there. Yeah, um, 
Well, when I came to New Jersey, I set up my video camera, and the first day we did experiments in his lab. Um, at his house, he explained to me how he was going to proceed with uh, the experimentation. And this involved taking very small pinpricks out of the, uh, the ink a part of the, uh, of, of the document and to, to study the chemistry. And while filming him, a clock visible on the wall behind him, an old wind-up clock, was ticking away and it suddenly chimed. And uh, you see in the film that I did, Life After Death Project, you see John Allison, his face, he's like, <laughs> shocked, like he turns white. Uh, and uh, he says, you know, well, that, that shouldn't be working. Um, and you had to wind it up to make it work, and he hadn't wound it up in years. Uh, he thought it hadn't worked in years, and he had the key hidden. His wife was out of town. She didn't know where the key was. It was his heirloom, and it had no business working. It had no business chiming, but it's caught there on, uh, on, the, on the video, and it's never chimed again. Uh, it's, it's never worked by itself again. So uh, that and the mystery of his scattering pages... And we have reports of pages being scattered in the Acker Mansion where Fari lived by the tenants who lived there, you know, after his death, uh, like a, a, um, uh, a singer who would rehearse with her music pages. And she'd uh, uh, stop to make a telephone call in another room, and she'd come back and she'd find the pages uh, scattered across the floor, spread, not just like they fell from the stand, but spread out like Allison did. So this was a recurring... Uh, phenomena, but with Allison, it it kept happening. His his phone behaved uh, oddly. It would move by itself across the mantelpiece and then fall and hit the floor. When uh, it, it wasn't on vibrate, there had been no call. Um, it had a, a rubber uh, container on the uh, the iPhone, so you know that friction should have held it on the mantel. And in one evening. Uh, around the time we heard that the Life After Death project was uh, accepted for uh, showing on the Sci-Fi Channel, the phone fell off the mantle twice, and then he put it on a coffee table beside him, and it worked its way across the coffee table and fell to the floor. Uh, later, he had the same thing happen with his iPad. He had a, a Furby, which is a, a toy, a, a, an when I was many, many years old, batteries hadn't been touched in years. Batteries should have been dead. He was cleaning up. He picked up the Furby. These are little animal toys, you know, that uh, talk to you in their own language, Furbish. And uh, this one uh, talked. The batteries were still working. And he said that in a 24-hour period, it said to him twice, for e for e which, of course, it was... Forrest J. Ackerman, he went by the name 4E, and he spelled it with the number 4, followed by an E, and that's what John Allison is hearing from a doll. It's like something out of the movie Chucky. Right. But it's real. It's real. And then John was working, he said, on a uh, few paragraphs about a concept that Gary Schwartz had this concept, and John was exploring with it, the idea of a, could you have a soul phone? If there's life after death, could we ever get to a point where you'd have a telephone where you could communicate with departed spirits?
spirits. It's all speculation at this point, you know, but that Gary Schwartz looks into the theory behind its possibility. So here's John Allison typing up paragraphs about uh, this uh, soul phone, and the Furby says to him while he's doing it, Ring, ring! Ring, ring! (laughs) So, um, creepy stuff in his laboratory, his equipment behaving impossibly strange. A drawer pushing out onto his arm repeated times when there's nothing to push it. And uh, there's a specific procedure for uh, turning off the, uh, the equipment. I think it's a laser desorption device. And the machine violated its own protocol and went through a series of things of with one device turning on and off by itself, which it shouldn't have done. So, again, it became a long list for John. And he, he eventually came to a... Um, we had a return to the Acker Mansion. We were invited to come there with scientists, Gary Schwartz. We brought two mediums with us, Suzanne Wilson, Jamie Clark, um, and uh, Rosemary Guiley, who's a paranormal author. Frequent guest on this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We spent three nights and four days at the Acker Mansion, the remodeled Acker Mansion. This is uh, several years after Fari has passed away. And... Uh, in this experimentation, we actually held a seance there, and there were things that happened in the seance that were caught on film that were very disturbing, because they, you know, you know <laughs> you'd say that they that couldn't happen. We had a skeptical scientist there, um, Dieter Steckless from the University of Arizona, Tucson, and his wife Netzine. And Dieter and Netzine are experts in gorillas. Uh, they were in charge of the Diane Fossey gorilla organization mm-hmm. in Africa. And Fari loved gorillas and King Kong, and they brought this death mask of a giant gorilla to the seance. And while he was sitting on a, a sofa, and Suzanne Wilson was bringing through the voices of the spirits she said were present, the couch that he's sitting on right where he's sitting on starts to vibrate so strong it's like it's an earthquake. And it's captured on film. And he has his son who's sitting behind him touch it, you know, and confirm he feels the vibration. And believe me, you know, with my suspicious mind, although nobody knew we were going to hold the seance in that room until 10 minutes ahead of time, when the whole thing is over, I go to that couch, I reach into every pillow, I look under the couch, I want to know, you know, (laughs) did somebody leave a sex toy in the (laughs) the couch, you know, (laughs) no. Absolutely not. And I slept on the couch that night in that room. Um, There was nothing, no way any of us could explain it. So here's the thing. When we wrote An Atheist in Heaven, I put together a glossary at the end. It's the last chapter. And it lists over 140 odd and inexplicable things that have happened uh, since Fari's death. And most of them relate in some way to Fari. Not all of them. There's a couple of other cases we bring in, too, but including something with my mother and my father-in-law. That's in the book, too. But, um, and even Marilyn Monroe, because I made this film, Marilyn Monroe Declassified. It's going to come out 
this year. Right, right. And some uh, odd things happened while I was making uh, that film, too. So maybe it just follows me at this point. Well, when you and I met uh, several weeks ago and had a, a breakfast... Uh, you were even bringing me up to date on th- something with an email, and but I, I want to go back to the clock uh, uh, for a moment because you mentioned uh, that uh, John Allison, uh, yeah. you were with him, and uh, his this this clock struck uh, chimed, and it never you know it never did that before, never did it again. Yep. But there is a um, a famous painting you mention in the book of Forrest Ackerman. It's called the Blue Forey. Yeah, it's on our cover of. It's the, the paintings on the cover of the Life After Death Project DVD, right? And we've adapted it so the the, the Fari part of it is on the cover of the Atheist in Heaven. It's a painting by L. J. Dopp, and Fari, as an old man, has his forefinger up to his lips, and he's it's as if he's saying, "Shh, listen to the spirits of the night." You know, it's that kind of an expression. <laughs> but this and the painting was made when. Painting was made in 2004. Okay, four years four before years he dies. Before he died. And yeah. and the clock behind him shows what time? Two minutes to midnight. And when did Forey die? Two minutes to midnight. Mm. And then there was the incident of the clock uh, buried in Gary Schwartz's chair when I visited him in Tucson, and we were discussing the case, and uh, the alarm went off at... This was actually two minutes to noon, or when it went off. He hadn't set the alarm. He didn't know even that it was buried in his chair at that point. But when you look at the clock, there's no difference between two minutes to noon and two minutes to midnight. You know, it looks the same on a clock. It's not a digital clock. So that was strange. So you keep getting these recurring things. You get, we've had apports, disappearances of objects. It shouldn't, shouldn't... <laughs> shouldn't be disappearing you know they're gone and then three days later uh, appear in a really obvious place many instances of that you know the categories and i want to talk about michael Shermer when we get into our next uh, you know after the break because that's really really important the skeptic society listen if you can if you can get michael Shermer on side you know you're on to something because as i as i mentioned he is one hard-boiled I don't. Even, you know, he's not he's even a had skeptic. His own experience now. You yeah, know, the spirits have paid him a visit. He can't explain it. <laughs> he wrote about it in Scientific American. Yeah, I reprinted it in uh, uh, Atheist in Heaven, and he he wrote a uh, a dedication. Uh, he signed to me uh, his book, The Believing Brain. Yes. After he saw the Life After Death Project, he wrote uh, to Paul in respect of your honest search and integrity, Michael Shermer. I've reproduced this in the book. And the point is, here is the, he's the publisher of Skeptic Magazine. Not Skeptical Inquirer, but Skeptic. Right. And he's the executive director of the Skeptic Society, based in uh, Pasadena. Right. Yeah, I've been to his and place. He's, he's admitting, after, he was in my first film, he was the resident skeptic there. He wasn't uh, completely closed-minded, but he just said he thinks that if this stuff is really happening... We call it paranormal today, but tomorrow we'll call it quantum physics. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be part of your science textbook. Well, I would say I would go further. I mean, he's been in a number of my my episodes uh, on, on the TV show, and I tell you, when 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 he's on that screen, I get more mail saying, "Why do you have that guy? He's not a skeptic; he's a debunker." And I have to put him in that camp. My yeah. experience is anyway, he is a debunker. Yeah. And for you to get Michael Shermer on side. Yes. Wow, I got to tell you. <laughs> and now to get him, he's writing in Scientific American. 
when something happens that shakes your skepticism to the very core. And we'll have to talk about what that was. All right. Paul David stays with us. An atheist in heaven. We'll also get to some phone calls when we come back. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Paul David stays with us. This is a special two-hour presentation here on The Conspiracy Show. In fact, I think this is the first time we've ever done this. Carried a guest over for the full two hours, but it is worth it because the case that he lays out in An Atheist in Heaven, the ultimate evidence for life after death, is so darn compelling. How could we not dedicate the full two hours? Let's grab a phone call here first before we proceed. And uh, let's see, we have Wayne in Tilbury on the line. Where's Tilbury, Wayne? Oh, I'd say about uh, 45 minutes from Windsor. All right. Do you ever hear the Windsor hum? Does it make it up to Tilbury? No, it does not. Okay. All right, we'll leave that for another show. You had a question, comment for Paul Davids. Yes, uh, when you would have something that would uh, that you would notice that would be odd, or or at the time when it would happen, would there be a a physical sensation that you would receive, like a, a static electricity sort of feeling? Sometimes I would say that was the case when we were dealing with that mask from Africa the day after the ink obliteration happened. I described that uh, earlier in the show. I I actually uh, got to feel somewhat physically ill. And the electromagnetic field reader that was pointed first at the the mask, and it just went off the charts with an electromagnetic field from there. This is just right across the wall from where the ink obliteration happened the night before. And then uh, that was then pointed at my head, and there was a an electromagnetic field that... Uh, was just uh, the thing was blinking, it was beeping. It it shouldn't have happened. I, I was just kind of terrified by the whole thing. Now, Wayne, now, you mentioned other times. Oh, I sorry. want to just tell about another time that I had a dinner party at my house. We have a, another mask. It's a weechel mask. It's flat. It's made of beads, Mexico, and uh, it's attached to a wall in the dining room. And I had uh, dinner guests here. My wife was here. There must have been about eight people, and someone made it comment that I turned into a, a pretty uh, distasteful uh, joke, uh, you know, off-color uh, joke, just by sort of twisting her words the way Fari Ackerman used to like to do. And everyone saw at that moment the Weechel mask off the wall at the moment of the punchline of the joke. And it didn't just fall, it went over a lampshade that's in front of it and landed right at my feet. And everyone was just again. The timing of it was just perfect for the instant that everyone broke out laughing. And you know, you you just can't explain it. It, it took force to push that off the wall. And we played the game. Okay. What happens if oh, here we go again, fails. Paul, with the uh, the phone. I don't know if Forey is reaching out to us again, but uh, the um, can you try the other handset or? Oh, uh, did we lose something on the handset? Okay, let's try go back to the other. <laughs> There's Forey Ackerman okay. for this you. This handset works a little bit better. So which part? Okay, no, that? I think we got most of it. The the uh, the this mask. Not only did it just fall off the wall. I mean, it it, it literally left over a lampshade and landed at your yes. feet. Yes, and all all these people saw it. So. A lot of the things that happened there were specific uh, witnesses to. And um, I want to get to this point that, that 
it was a variety of types of evidence that built up. And this is why it needed to be this book also, because we had physical phenomena. Um, we had instrumental transcommunication, which included the electronic voice phenomena. We had extraordinary results from mediums. And we had many, many really improbable synchronicities where you just say, it just can't happen. That chance is one in a million that that would happen, and it connects with Fari. So Michael Shermer, who we were talking about, used the expression consilience of evidence and said that for science to progress, it takes the consilience of evidence, meaning the conformity or agreement of evidence all pointing in the same direction from different fields of study that you get this kind of confirmation pattern and the point is that's what we have that's what we have here right now i don't know which category this fits under uh perhaps the synchronicity but there there's a an episode that you document in the book involving fate magazine yeah uh, in which they they talk about the, uh, the, the ink obliteration, they talk about the blue f- uh, a Fori painting. Yes. Uh, tell us about that. Okay. So uh, I was asked by the publisher of Fate, Phyllis Galdi, to write an article about the Fari phenomena, because I told her about it at a conference. And I called the article um, The Strange Case of Forrest J. Ackerman. And um, when the article went to press... The day I saw the, fir- the printed copy of it, I was so upset and dismayed because I could see right on the first page of my article there was a terrible double typographical error. I didn't see how anybody could fail to catch it. It completely destroyed the continuity of what I was talking about, and I thought made my article seem foolish. And so I was angry at the publisher. But then we talked about it, and what, what the... What the misprint was, I was right in the middle of talking about the artist L.J. Dopp, terrific artist, by the way. Look, look him up. He painted uh, that blue Fari painting that had the clock that predicted four years in advance the time of Fari's death. So I just had the words L.J., and instead of his last name and what I wrote, it suddenly says in Fate magazine, The Blackout in two levels of opacity, spoke to Joe Amude. And then it repeats it. The blackout in two levels of opacity um, in in the the document spoke to Joe Amade. And then it goes on with what I wrote. Well, uh, I never wrote those words there that that way. And when it has the in, in two levels, it uses the numeral two rather than T-W-O. You know, I, I didn't write that. It shouldn't have been there. And Phyllis Galdi said, you know, four proofreaders looked at this before it went to press. She did. David Godwin, the, um, I think he was sort of an executive director of the magazine and two proofreaders. And she said it wasn't there when they sent it in to go to press. So, then I have this revelation where I'm thinking, you know, maybe this isn't an accident. It's, again, it's the article about the strange case of Fari, and it's sticking it right there in front of your face about the fact that there was this blackout in my document with two levels of blackness of the ink. Fari was underscoring that point, obviously. Yeah. All right, listen, we've got to take a time out. We'll get back to uh, this discussion and some phone calls right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. 
providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. All right, welcome back. Paul Davids is with us, author, filmmaker, and the book is An Atheist in Heaven, The Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death, a compelling evidence for post-mortem communication between the late Forrest J. Ackerman, editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, and uh, Paul Davids. And uh, let's grab a phone call here. Peter is in Buffalo. Peter, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi, Richard. Uh, you have a great show, and you are a really great host. I've heard you many times on your, on your own show and also on Coast to Coast. Uh, Paul, you know, um, I've heard these stories a lot over the years. I certainly think you are telling the truth. Uh, you, you seem to be very impressed by this uh, thing. Um, but, you know, um, ever since um, I read a book in 1986 called Spiritual Seekers Guidebook, and actually before that, you know, um, how do we know that this is actually Forrest who's communicating to you or if it's some prankster? I would say that uh, if you start getting information, um, you know, that might be, you know, kind of a tip-off. Because, you know, if it's a prankster, they might start leading you down, um, you know, the wrong path type thing. You mean, a, you don't mean a, a living prankster. You mean no, sort no, of a, no, a prankster terrible. spirit. Right, right. Well, uh, I mean, before you respond, Paul, I would say even if that is the case, that certain that still points to the existence of a spirit world. Oh, of course, of course, yes. I have no doubt that there's a spirit world. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Paul, you want to weigh in on this? How do we know that it's Forey and not some some lower realm spirit prankster doing this? Well, uh, I think Forey was a prankster himself. <laughs> you know, maybe a higher realm spirit prankster, but it's a fair question, obviously. And I think that the best answer is that uh, so many of these uh, uh, instances of phenomena relate to Fari personally in such a specific way. And when we got to the mediums through Gary Schwartz, people that he had vetted, his details about this, you can see them in the Life After Death Project uh, DVD, but you can read uh, much more detail about it in An Atheist in Heaven. But and wouldn't that uh, information uh, be uh, readily available to people in the spirit world? You know, no, well, in the spirit world. Well, you know, again, things that are so specific to Fari, to his personality, to expressions he would do, to his particular beliefs, to, I mean, we're talking about from a medium that had no knowledge of who this forest was she was supposed to be communicating with. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but you get you get such detail about uh, about about his life, and so many of the contacts do seem to be so intimate. If you heard the first hour, you heard me talking about that uh, uh, Joe Mo's apparition of Fari coming to thank him for the tribute, yeah, and the timing that. of the first message to Fari uh, from Fari uh, to me uh, with the uh, spoke to Joe Mo which connected to that so closely. I mean, I, I guess I have to say the argument, the argument would be in the interconnections and in the specific relationship of the information to Fari's own life and how it is an expression of his own personality as we remember it. Now, yeah, if, all of that, if all of that is being mimicked by um, some other entity, um, well, you know, I mean, how would you... How would you know or, or prove that? All I can say is that from somebody that knew him for half a century, 
the uh, the contacts have the thrust of his personality behind them for me and for others that know him. That's the best we can say. Great question, Peter, and great to hear from you in uh, in Buffalo. Please call again. Um, now we talked about uh, uh, Ackerman's you know views on on life after death, and he was pretty uh, explicit about how he felt. What was what was your view of of the afterlife? You know, before Ackerman died, I didn't have a hard and fast conclusion. I was raised as a secular Jew without any particular religious belief. My parents were not practicing. Um, I did read on reincarnation and the studies of uh, Ian Stevenson. I found them fascinating. I read Paramahansa Yogananda, Autobiography of a Yogi, and he talked about reincarnation and a lot of these spirit things, and apports, things that can appear and disappear from the spirit world. Uh, but when it hasn't happened to you, it all has a distance to it. Of It's an intellectual exercise, you know. Do I believe that? Do I accept his sincerity? Do I accept the, the uh, evidence? I must say my closest encounter with it was when I worked for F. Lee Bailey on the show Lie Detector. And I brought in Dorothy Allison, a psychic detective from New Jersey. There was a book about her. And we put her to a polygraph, trying to see whether she was genuine. And one particular case where she had helped police find the uh, body of a murder victim. And the clues that she offered as to where the body was, you know, it just seemed there's no way she could have known any of this unless it was given to her uh, from the, the murdered, the spirit of the murdered person. You know, it involved... Uh, a, 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 a bridge for only uh, pedestrians. Uh, it involved uh, uh, factory chimneys near a church steeple. It involved the letters M-A-R, which turned out to be actual graffiti right near the oil barrel that the body was found in. Um, so when I heard all this firsthand, she passed the polygraph, of course I, I started to have an open mind, you know, this could be true. But never having seen any evidence of it until the Fari thing happened for me, uh, life changed. It just has changed uh, completely. And you'll see from the book, I urge people to to get An Atheist in Heaven. It's at Amazon.com. You can get it as e-book or as the 500-page uh, the, the print book. Uh, all the evidence that's there, the scientific reports, all the photos we have that support the case, the whole case is there for those who will delve into it. And my, my greatest hope is that the scientific community will take the bait and dive into it. Uh, and you mentioned the, um, the Marilyn Monroe uh, film that you're working on. Yeah, I've completed now. Uh, it's going to come out. There was an instance, and you've actually included it in the book, uh, something very odd happened with, with regards to with Marilyn. There were there were uh, about a dozen things, a dozen really odd things that uh, that that happened. Um, we have a little bit of time. I'll I'll mention this. Uh, the film does get into the murder theory. Uh, officially, she was a probable suicide. Some think perhaps it was accidental overdose, but uh, there is the murder theory. And then. Um, in recent years, there was a confession through the Sam Giancana family, the mobster, his family, 
that Sam Giancana had ordered this uh, this hit and had done it on a day when Bobby Kennedy had visited her. Sure, we know Peter Lawford and Kennedy were in yeah, town. He, yeah. And, and the, the mobster, Sam Giancana, hated uh, Bob Kennedy, who went after the mob with a vengeance, after the mob had helped, really helped John F. Kennedy get the White House through getting the votes he needed in Chicago to deliver Illinois. So they felt betrayed. And by planning it on a day when Bobby Kennedy had been there and his, his fingerprints, they thought, would have been found, it was a very uh, complex thing handled as a police chief, Tom Redden of Los Angeles, has said, handled like a, an intelligence top-secret operation, the aftermath of it. So one of the things that happened was I was filming director uh, Philippe Mora, who directed the film Communion, by the way, Whitley Strieber's book. Uh, and um, I was interviewing him because he dealt with the FBI documents on this, and I was explaining to him this theory that, uh, that there had been an, an intended entrapment of Bobby Kennedy. And this was on film. At the moment I said the word entrapment, his Mac, visible right beyond his shoulder, suddenly booted itself up. It wasn't asleep. It wasn't on and asleep. It booted itself up from zero. No one touched it. That was really odd. Never seen that happen. He'd never seen it happen. Never happened before or after with that. I've never heard. Has anybody who listens to this show call in? Let Richard know. Does anybody have a Mac that was turned off and something, you walk into a room and it suddenly boots itself, turns itself on? But it's reminiscent of what happened to Ian Johnson after they visited Forey's Crypt at Forest Lawn. Yes, that he heard the communication. And I don't know, I think we might have time for this one last story, uh, Richard, that's important because it's so Canadian. Got two and a half minutes, yeah. Okay. Uh, the ring Forey always wore, a gift from Bella Lugosi, uh, the actor who played Dracula. Yeah sold for around $30,000 at the, uh, the estate auction after Fari passed away. And um, Michael McDonald, who ra had wrapped on Fari's crypt, as I explained, he lived in Halifax. Well, one year later, this ring somehow made its way from Los Angeles to Halifax to the gallery right next door, practically next door, within 100 feet of um, Michael McDonald's house. Mike walks down the steps outside his house, crosses in front of the gallery, sees the window display, and there is Fari Ackerman's ring in the window right oh next to his my. house. <laughs> so the world is mysterious place, you know. And and if the skeptics want us to believe it all happened by accident, oh come on. Come and it, on. but and the thing is it's still happening, isn't it? It's yes. it, it, Yes, yes, up to the point that you and I had lunch six weeks ago, and things have happened even uh, since then. There was an email that was received by Jack Kelleher, sent by someone who's deceased now. And the email was originally sent in 2012. He never got it. It arrived in his inbox, you know, now, with a whole lot of names of Fari friends and their email addresses, <laughs> we thought, was being delivered to us to tell them about an atheist in heaven. But uh, there was no date on this email except 2012. It, it's, it's Lost strange. in cyberspace for four years? I yeah. don't think so. Yeah, strange. Right. Wow, Paul, what a delight. Thank you so much for this. Congratulations on An Atheist in Heaven, the ultimate evidence for life after death, available on uh, Amazon. Great job. Great job. Thank you, sir. All right, Paul, thank you. Talk again soon.
Good night. Paul David's an atheist in heaven. All right, my thanks to uh, Ian Robertson, of course, Albert Finzel, Jonathan Franz, all of you listening. I'm back next week with a brand new program. I think we're going to do some open lines right off the top, just to you know shake things up a little bit. So get your questions and comments ready for next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say. In a whisper, proclaim from the rooftops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>